Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast, where we have a special guest today who is essentially mute. It's Covey, <laughs> the super dog. Covey doesn't have much to say. At least I hope she doesn't, because she'll hurt my ears if she barks. But she's decided to sit up here because I tempted her with a little treat. And she will listen to us, and you guys can enjoy looking at something a little better looking than I am. Right, Covey? Oh, yes. Yeah. You'll be proud of yourself. <laughs> Well, this is Covey, my guest. For those of you who are listening on the podcast, Covey is my English setter. Some folks think she's kind of pretty. I tend to agree. She's got beautiful markings, and she likes to, every once in a while, get in front of the camera, especially if she gets a treat during and after the event. So, Covey, you got to work with me now, and then you'll get your treat, okay? Okay. Covey is a little bit excited to go out. Yesterday, we had a big blizzard, and we were out plowing the driveway, and she ran alongside and stuff and had a great time. But now she's ready to go again. But we have below zero temperatures and a big wind, and Dad's going to have to put on a whole bunch of clothing and some snowshoes before we go out today. Let's get this done, Covey, and we will go out. Here um, is a question from someone named Gerald. Gerald is uh, one of my patrons on Patreon. So, Gerald, welcome. He's already had this question answered because I get to those as soon as they come in. But I'm going to share it with the rest of you. Gerald um, asked me, can you explain why a pump action backup rifle in a large caliber has never been made? Hmm, a pump would be quicker than a lever gun, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, Gerald. I do like pump actions. They are quick and they're in line. When you run that pump, you don't move the rifle up and down. It's just straight forward, straight back. Helps you stay on target a little easier. So why not in a, say, stopping rifle, a dangerous game cartridge like a 458 lot, 458 Winchester, 470 Nitro Express, 505 Gibbs. There's all kinds of them. Never hear of them in a pump action. I don't know the absolute answer to this, but as I told you in my earlier letter, I think it's because of the unreliability of the strength of those actions in extracting cartridges. I do know that with my pump shotguns, I've got pump 22s and pump 12 gauges, but nothing else. I never got into the Remington pump action 30 out sixes and 270s and such. But I did notice if I had a sticky cartridge, <laughs> and back in the day when I hand loaded everything, and I mean everything, <laughs> I got some sticky cartridges in my 12 gauges and I couldn't get them out. You'd have to uh, literally beat the butt stock on the ground while holding onto the pump to try to extract those. And sometimes you would break the little extractor hook. So it's not the most robust action style. I don't know if you could improve that or not, but traditionally the Mauser 98 with that big claw extractor was what they wanted in their dangerous game rifles. And they're still built that way, almost all of them. Because of the positive extraction, early days of smokeless powder, you would often, often get excessive pressures especially when it warmed up and you were hunting in Africa and it got really, really hot. Man, those loads would get so much pressure that they would stick in the chamber and they were hard to get out. And guys would literally have to beat the uh, bolt handle with a piece of wood or something to get them out. I don't think that would work with a pump action. So unless someone out there has better answer than that, Gerald, I'm sticking with it. I just don't think you could trust those pumps to get out a sticky case. Are you going to sleep on my arm, Covey? Okay. <laughs> All right. Here's another patron. This is Dave. And 
Dave says he's looking at a Swarovski 1.7 to 10 or a 2.5 to 15 or a Zeiss 2 to 10 or a 2 to 12. Um, hmm. He says, I don't like their basic reticles because they do a lot of long-range coyote hunting. So would a Night Force 2.5 to 10 with more of a ballistic-type reticle facilitate coyote hunting out to 500, 600 yards? And what is the longest range one could hunt with a 10 power if the rifle system and shooter are good to go? Is Swarovski as durable as Leupold? Is Zeiss? I might hunt coyotes um, down to whew, minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> That's like the day around here, buddy. <laughs> so are there any uh, problems with that? Oh, also, I have to look up in their warranties and see if the Swarovski and Zeiss have lifetime warranties like Leupold. Yeah, I believe they do. Most of those uh, better scope companies do have lifetime warranties. In fact, these days, almost all scope manufacturers have lifetime warranties or or something awfully good, but you're wise to look at those because they do two things. Not only do they guarantee that they'll fix that scope for you if something is wrong with it, but they suggest that nothing should be wrong with it. I mean, why offer a lifetime guarantee if you're building a scope that's so cheap and cheesy that something's going to break and you're going to have to honor that? It just makes more expense and work for everyone. So it's always good to look for that lifetime warranty. Now, as far as your question about power, 10x good enough for reaching to five six hundred yards. Well, it certainly is. If you consider 10x, means that everything looks ten times closer. So if you're looking at an animal through a ten power scope at hundred yards, it would be the equivalent of seeing it at ten yards with your naked eye. So a six hundred yard coyote with that 10x scope should look like what sixty yards away, right? You think you could hit a coyote with an open sight at sixty yards? That's no magnification. So yes, I do think it's enough. That said, I have noticed that more magnification will give you more confidence because you're seeing a larger image and it just feels like he's right there and you can get him. So as long as you know your ballistic trajectories and you've chosen either the right reticle for that distance or dialed to that distance, you should be fine. Now, as far as the reticles themselves, I think as you probably well know, you can get the ballistic reticles. Um, you can get custom ones in some scopes. I think most manufacturers now offer that. Or you can go with turret dialing, in which case your basic duplex or simple crosshair scope should be just fine, as long as you can dial it precisely. And all of these brands are pretty reliable. And whether or not the ultimate durability goes with one over the other, I don't know. That's such a difficult thing to test. Um, I do know that Swarovski and Zeiss pretty much pull out all the stops when they build scopes. Uh, they do have a couple of lines with the Swarovski. The less expensive line is the Z3, and then you work your way up from the Z5, the Z6, the Z8, and uh, they get more expensive and more elaborate and higher quality probably throughout that process. Um, and then Zeiss has the Conquest line as well as their top line, Victory. And Leupold does the same thing with the Freedom line and the VX3. They used to have a VX2, but they go VX3 and 5 and I think even a 6 and a 7. So most of these companies will do that sort of thing. And what do you get for it? Maybe a little bit better coatings on your lenses and a reflection coatings and probably better materials in, in we'll say, well, the springs that support the erector tube inside of the scope. Those are critical. Because that erector tube is what you're moving around to zero things and adjust your sight in and stuff. And they have to be supported by springs of some kind. 
and those springs can weaken and break under repeated shooting because they vibrate with each shot. So the quality of the materials that they're using in that erector tube and those springs and the turrets and all the rest of it plays a pretty big role in longevity. So I don't think you'll go wrong with any of those. And of course, that I think you mentioned a night force here, did you? Yes, a night force. They kind of hang their hat on extreme durability. They build things. Initially, I think they were building for the military. So they, they really try to make things super strong. And the powers that you're suggesting, I think, will do just fine. Um, if I were really thinking of, of doing a lot of 500, 600 yard shooting on coyotes, I probably would go with the higher end, the 15. Um, in a Swarovski, I always like that three and a half to 18 by 44. I think that's a good compromise. But something in that two and a half to four power at the bottom up to 15 to 20 at the top should be about right for you. So, yeah, I hope that answered the question for you. Dave, and uh, let me know how you do with your setup, what you eventually get, and how it works for you. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. All right, Covey, would you like to read this next one? Okay, this is from Curtis Lynn. Oh, very good. I can't even see your mouth move. <laughs> well, Curtis is from Georgia. <laughs> okay, what does he want? Uh, yeah, Curtis is asking, what's wrong with gun makers? What makes a 270 non-mag? Now they make a 270 Winchester Super Magnum. Oh, now what makes that a Magnum? Next, it'll be a 30-30 short mag. Lots of laughs. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Boy, do you know the answer to that one, Covey? <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> what is wrong with gun makers? <laughs> I don't know that there's anything wrong with gun makers. Obviously, as many say, they're just trying to get your money. <laughs> and of course, they're trying to get your money. That's why they're in business. I don't know very many people who start a business to not make money. And the way they make money is by offering new products. 
uh, every company does that. The new and improved Tide, the new and improved Cheerios, uh, uh, Honey Nut Cheerios, and Multigrain Cheerios, and on and on it goes. My gosh, there's more Cheerio varieties on the store shelves now than there were total breakfast foods when I was a kid. So it's a similar deal with cartridges. Young folks are always looking for the latest and greatest. They're always interested in new stuff. Get to be an old codger and you've been around the block and you go, eh, good enough. I know what this thing can do, so I'll stick with it. But some people always like new things. And that's why we come out with new model cars every year that are running the same engine they've had for the last 20 years. They just put different fenders on it. So that's essentially what's going on. But I do think the new cartridges address certain specific needs. They sort of tweak things. And I think the fast twist barrels these days are a big part of that. People have realized that they can get more efficient flight out of bullets if they're long and sleek, higher ballistics coefficients. So they make new cartridges that really optimize that sort of thing. Other people like shorter actions and fatter cartridges fill some of that. You keep your pressures up and your velocities up by having a short fat case with the same or more powder volume than you did with the old skinny shapes. And then there's a little bit of the shape contributing to inherent accuracy. I don't think it amounts to a heck of a lot, but there's a little bit of benefit from things like that. So you cannot blame these cartridge manufacturers for trying to improve the wheel, not reinvent it, but improve it. I mean, yeah, just the way it works. So a good question. And that's the best answer I can come up with. Right, Covey? Now, you want to read another one, Covey? I wonder if people like your voice. I'll bet they really like the tone of your voice. Let's try another one. This is from Frank, and he's from Pennsylvania. What does Frank say? Oh, hey, Ron. I mentioned this once before to you, and my question is, are all these newfangled cartridges with fast twists, like the 7PRC and the 6.5 whatnot, are they totally capable of shooting the shorter bullets? Since I believe the weight isn't really a problem, it's the size. And if so, why didn't the originals just have fast twist rates to start with? I'm sure 140 or less would work great in the 7PRC. Well, probably. What do you think, Covey? Yes, saying, uh, Frank, I think your answer here is the, uh, the uh, long, sleek bullets are for better downrange performance. Just that simple. Less wind deflection flatter trajectories, and more energy. Who wouldn't want that? It's efficiency, really. I think you know, instead of calling a ballistic coefficient, they should have just said aerodynamically efficient because most people understand that. Why buck the wind when you can slip through it and not waste your energy? So that's why they went with it. But the good question you have here is, why didn't they do that in the first place? Because they didn't have long, sleek, high BC bullets in the first place. Uh, a bullet, gosh, when they started with, cartridges it was flat nosed and then round nosed and they gradually began to figure out there was some advantage to a sleeker bullet the spire points came out in the early 20th century and started to wake a lot of folks up but by then they've already had all sorts of cartridges out there um and then the 30-06 came along and made for a, a pretty fast efficient cartridge and they put spire points on that you know they originally put a round nose on it U.S. military, in 1903, they were trying to come up with a new cartridge that would match up with the 757 Spanish Mauser. And they came up with this 30 6 which is really just a 757 extended a little bit, and they made 30 instead of 7. But they found that that 220-grain round-nose bullet was sacrificing what they were gaining with the extra powder capacity and pressures and stuff. So they went to 150-grain spire point, and bingo, 
that made all the difference. So this has been going on for a long, long time. And the reason that they don't just fast twist everything that's already out there, I think is because they're worried that people will get them mixed up, especially folks with an older rifle, let's say a 270. Everyone's always said, why don't we increase the spin rate on that thing? We can shoot longer bullets. And I would guess that old guys like me would go to the store and say, ah, 270. I haven't seen a box of these in ages. I need some. You grab a box and it's the new 170 grain super BC bullet. You take it home to your 270. You can't hit the broad side of a box. And then you're mad at the company for making junk ammo that won't shoot anymore. They didn't want problems like that. So they thought it's just a lot simpler to make a new 270, like the 6.8 Western. And that's, I think, why they do it. But the other reason is definitely that it's also going to sell more rifles if there's a new chambering. Because Remington right now, the new Remington, they started up again under new management and everything else. It's a whole different company, but they kept the name. Remington, I don't know if they call them Remington Arms or what, but Remington is building standard rifles in standard calibers, like the 7 Rem Mag, standard cartridges, I should say, chamberings. And they've increased the twist rate because they know that that is what the new shooters are looking for. I think they're going to do it with the 270 pretty soon, too. They'll probably come out with a one in eight, maybe one in nine twist, so they can stabilize those new high BC bullets that are out in 277. So that's exciting, too. So it's coming around, just coming around. Those are our answers on that one. All right, here is Danny Miller from uh, West Virginia. You don't mind if I read this one, do you, Kev? Take a break. Your your voice is probably getting hoarse with all that work you're doing. Danny asks, uh, how about that 27 Nosler? How does it compare to the 6.8 Western? Ah, good question. Uh, these are two new 270s. And the 27 Nosler is considerably larger. It's a 30-06 length, whereas the 6.8 Western is a short action. So it's a little bit longer. It's a little bit fatter, I believe. Yeah, it might be the same there, but it does have a higher powder capacity, and that means it's going to drive the same bullets faster. How much faster? I think you're averaging maybe 150 feet per second faster. So it could push a 150 grain bullet, perhaps 3,200 to 3,300 feet per second, depending on your barrel length. And the 6.8 Western, well, let's see. They both shoot 170 grain bullets. So let's go with that. So I remember 2,960 feet per second was what I got with a 6.8 Western shooting at 170 grain. And I think the 27 Nosler would push that to 3,300 feet per second, 3,200 feet per second at least. So yeah, you're picking up anywhere from 150 to 200 feet per second more velocity. And that's the difference. You want a short action rifle or a long, you want a little bit faster bullet or not. And then of course the, uh, eventually the, the throat's going to burn out with the one that's burning more powder with a higher flame temperature. And that would be the 27 Nosler. But for a hunting cartridge, I don't think you have to worry about it. You'll probably be done hunting before that rifle is done. All right, Covey, wake up. It's time to read one from Victor Smith, Oklahoma guy. He wants to know something. Hi, Ron. I hunt with a Henry Single Shot 308. I've successfully taken deer, elk, and speed goat. What's a speed goat? That's a pronghorn. Okay. However, most hunters I run across educate me on the importance of a quick follow-up shot. What do you think of a single-shot rifle for hunting? Ignoring your love for the 308, haha. Thanks. Okay, let's answer that one, Cove. <sighs> what do I think about a single-shot? I love single-shots. Do I think they're a handicap? No, I really don't think they are. Quick follow-up shots? Hey, if you have a single-shot, you take your time and you make the first shot count. You don't need a follow-up shot. 
and they are allowed to shoot more than once. Single shot doesn't mean you shoot it once and throw it away. It just means you single load it. So single shot guns really should be called single loaders and you load them one at a time and you load a bolt action and a lever action really one at a time. It's just that it's a little quicker because they're stacked up in a magazine for quick access. But there are single shot hunters who have really trained and they can load almost as fast as the bold action guys. I remember years ago, uh, Dakota Arms, um, uh, who's a Don, Don Allen, told me about a guy that had one of their single shot rifles, which I love, the Model 10. What a sleek falling block action that thing is. He said there was a guy who really practiced with that, and he challenged his buddy to a seven-shot shoot-off. Who could get seven shots on the target fastest? Well, the Bolt guy figured he had it made because he's got a four-shot magazine and he's going to, oh, there was the challenge, the four-shot magazine. So the single-shot guy would shoot once, tip the rifle up as the opening action. The empty would fall out and he had another one, I think, on a on the butt stock or maybe he had a belt loop. At any rate, he pulled another round, dropped it in, closed the action shot again. Well, the Bolt guy was going through the first four or five shots really quickly, but then he had to shove rounds into that magazine or single load him and he hadn't practiced and all the rest of it. So the single shot guy beat him on seven shots. So rest assured, you can train yourself to keep another round pretty handy and it really doesn't take very many seconds to get it in and get your gun back in action. So if you like single shots, I'd say go with it. All right, gosh, you guys are asking some nice questions this time. Brandon. He is from Florida. I didn't know anyone in Florida went hunting. Hello, Mr. Ron. Hey, in the episode of the 3030 versus the 350 Legend, you said that the 500 Smith & Wesson has a low maximum average pressure, chamber pressure. To my knowledge, it has a SAMI maximum average pressure of 60,000 PSI. If you just consider that low, my hat is off to you. <laughs> no, I consider myself corrected. <laughs> I did not know it was that high. And I, holy mackerel. I just assumed because it was created for revolvers that the, the pressure would be fairly low. But I didn't look it up. I just got this question now. So is, is uh, Brandon correct? Those of you who are really familiar with the Smith & Wesson 500, that is a big 50 caliber revolver cartridge does that have a maximum average chamber pressure setting of 60,000 psi that's the same as a 30-06 that is high so wow that is interesting and i'm glad you corrected me if you're correct and i assume you are if you're you're going to put it out there i'm sure you double checked it so yeah thanks for that one i had no idea all right this is rio and he said hey oh he's from south dakota my old home state cool Hey, Ron, I grew up in a very dedicated hunting, reloading, and rifle-building family. Nah, a lot of South Dakotans like that, huh? Cool. I recently uh, brought you up in a conversation about a 6mm Creedmoor with my family, and I learned something about you. Uh-oh. <laughs> Going back to my South Dakota days, I may be in trouble here. Apparently, my grandfather, Steve, went to college with you. Oh, boy, I hope I didn't do anything wrong here. Steve mentioned... Uh, a few select memories about you, and he may have said something about stuffed animals in your dorm room. <laughs> that sounds like the guy. <laughs> it was also mentioned that the last time you two caught up was at Marty's Taxidermy in Phillips, South Dakota. Yes, indeed. I even remember that. My cousin was a teacher in Phillip, and I would stop in, and he was good friends with Marty at the taxidermy shop. 
and I was probably on a hunt and had something to contribute, like a cape or something. I think it was a mule deer cape I brought in. Any rate, um, Rio continues. I grew up chasing whitetail mule deer and antelope all around that area, and it's a small world. Keep uh, I keep being reminded of this as time goes on. I love your content and wish you the best going forward. Hope this sparks some memories. Yeah, it sure does. I really appreciate that, Rio. And that uh, interesting point about the small world, it really is, isn't it? Especially when you're in the hunting field the way we are. I bump into people all around the world who have some kind of a connection because I think we have a fairly small world of hunters. We all read the same magazines and watch the same YouTube channels and whatnot. And you get to know folks. And gosh, I've been on flights to South Africa where I almost always see someone who I already know or who knows me. And then we get to be friends. And it's just a real treat to bump into that sort of situation and find out that it really is a small world. And you just proved it again, Rio. That's pretty cool. Thanks for that one. All right. Looks like uh, my assistant here, my interview partner of the day, has left for some greener fields, or in this case, whiter. <laughs> Jason from South Carolina. I'll bet it's a little warmer right where you are, Jason. Jason asks, could you please do a video on different shotgun buckshot sizes and slug weights? geared mainly to hunting big game. Hmm. I could, and I will. I have that on the agenda. I was going to do that earlier. I'd done something on birdshot, the smaller shot, and then I said I would get to the more stuff on slugs and buckshot and whatnot later, so I do need to hop on that. Might be in another few weeks or maybe even wait until spring because with all the snow outside right now, not as easy to do, but I will say something about buckshot right now, which is simply the definition of terms, because I see so many people mixing up buckshot and birdshot. They'll say, I, you know, I went pheasant hunting and I use such, what kind of buckshot should I use for pheasants? You shouldn't use buckshot for pheasants, so it would be called birdshot. <laughs> you should use birdshot. What's the difference? Buckshot are large pellets, larger than BB and T shot. In pellets, you go from a large number, which is a small size, like 12, up the scale, 12 shot, 9 shot, 8 shot, 7 and a half shot, 6 shot, 5 shot, 4 shot, 3 shot, 2 shot, 1 shot, BB, T shot. There's lots of indeterminate sizes and whatever, but you get up into about BB and T, and that's kind of the end of the bird shot. You would use great big T pellets for geese, great really big geese, and swans, turkeys if you body shot them, but most of us want to head shoot turkeys. So that is the end of the birdshot. Then you go to buckshot. You got four buck and double lot buck and triple lot and all these different buckshot sizes. And obviously you need a larger size pellet for big game. And you have to be fairly close. We will do some videos on that buckshot stuff because a lot of people think it is really deadly and it really isn't as deadly as many of us think. And why would that be? It's because each of those pellets is pretty small and there aren't very many of them. I mean, you think about a 12-gauge with some big pellet sizes in there, buckshot sizes, you cannot get very many pellets into that shell. So they all had better hit because your ounce of lead in that load is probably two ounces or less. And then they're in individual pellets that do not have high ballistics coefficients, do not carry all that much energy individually. The whole load does. But if several of those pellets miss, you don't get that energy. And the pellets don't penetrate as far as 
uh, higher velocity pellet wood, and there are just all kinds of things that really limit and hamper the effectiveness at buckshot downrange. And we'll have to do some work on exactly what an effective range is for taking deer with buckshot of different sizes. But there's a lot to be covered uh, on an article like that. So we'll get around to it. But thanks for reminding me. I really appreciate it. All right, this gentleman is from Missouri. His name is Owen, and he wonders reloading. Is it a good idea to get into reloading? If so, how do I get started? I would say it absolutely is a good thing to get into reloading. Now, a lot of people these days are saying, no, not anymore because it's so hard to find components, especially primers. Nobody can find a primer to make a load anymore. I happen to have a pile of primers left over from when I could get them. I bought them in bulk. but. I understand this. If you're just getting into reloading, you, you can buy all the tools. And then how do you load a cartridge if you don't have a primer to ignite the darn thing? Now, the good news is that they are starting to make more primers. Uh, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories and arguments and who knows which ones are right and wrong about the government buying up all this ammo and, and the uh, ammo makers not selling primers because they want them to fulfill their orders, which if that's true, you can't blame them because everyone's complaining that they can't find factory ammunition. Well, you need primers for that. And if there's already a backlog and they've got enough primers to fill that backlog, they're not going to sell them to me to hand load. <laughs> they're going to put them in their own cartridges. So that stuff is going on, but it looks like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. For one thing, Fioki is expanding its operations in the U.S., including a new plant just to make primers. Federal is upping its uh, primer production and all the rest of them. It takes time to ramp this stuff up, hire new workers, new equipment if it's needed, and fulfill the back order. So we just have to hang in there. That said, once the components again become readily available, will it be worth it getting into reloading? Absolutely. Are you going to save a mint? No, but you'll save a little bit because you're using that brass case over and over and over again. You don't have to pay for it once and throw it away. Next is you've got much more variety in the bullets that you can shoot. Not only the type and the manufacturer, but the sizes. Factory loads are generally sold with your standard deer hunting. They're not going to mess around with the really, really lightweight bullets or the really, really heavyweight bullets in every cartridge out there. And a lot of cartridges now aren't being loaded at all because they can't fill orders for the 308 Winchester and the 223 and the 9mm. Why are they going to be making a 35 Remington? <laughs> so if you've got a cartridge for which you cannot find ammo as a hand loader, you'll be able to make them. And then finally, you know, there are other few little benefits, but mainly it's a you can custom tailor this load for maximum performance in your rifle. And that doesn't just mean you crank up the volume so much that you've got a new high-speed something or other. It's precision shooting, accuracy. There are a lot of little tweaks you can make when you hand load that will make your loads a lot more accurate. So wonderful benefits. The, the final final of the finals is that it's just plain fun. It's just satisfying to make something with your own hands. And anyone who's done that, whether it's carpentry or mechanical things, you build something and you take pride in that. And <laughs> the crazy thing about it, you take pride in this load of ammunition you've got. You almost hate to shoot it <laughs> because you've taken so much time to make the perfect cartridge. And then you go bang and it's gone. <laughs> but the good news is you go back home and you can make it again. So. Yeah, I definitely recommend getting into hand loading. It is really fun. All right. 
Now, this is Joseph from Oklahoma, and uh, Joseph wonders about, looks like a 30 AR Remington. I'll bet you a lot of you have never even heard of this cartridge. Great cartridge. So he asks, you mentioned the Remington 30 AR recently in one of your videos. It was on, oh, one on the 6mm ARC. Can you speak to the WSSM cartridges, 243, 25, 30, etc., uh, in an AR platform. I didn't know that there was a 30 WSSM, but I get your drift. And I'd like to chamber a match barrel in one of these cartridges, something that would be accurate out to 500 yards or even past that for target practice, but also one that packs wallops for pig hunting. So I worry that the 6 ARC loses a little too much velocity in the gas gun. Okay, I think I get your drift here. The 30 AR Remington was a short fat that would fit in an AR, and it really had some remarkable performance, better than the 3030, comparable now to, I would say, the hammer, the 300 hammer. Um, but it, it faded away because you had to change the bolt dia um, diameter, the bolt head, and the uppers. And there were several things you had to change, the magazine box and all the rest of it. So it wasn't as simple as having a 223 setup that you could just drop a, another upper onto it and keep using the same magazines and the same bolt carrier and all the rest of it. So it sort of faded away. But, man, it had great ballistic performance. So the hammer would not do that. I would recommend that 300 hammer. As for the WSSMs, they're fat. And you're going to have similar problems. Um, so I don't know that they're that viable. I haven't even thought of putting them into an AR. I, I have not run into an AR that shot them. I'm going to guess that it's not going to work because, gosh, you've got a, a larger body diameter than the 308 Winchesters. Um, the, the rim is rebated a little bit, but I don't think it's down to even uh, 0.473 of the 30-06 family or the 308. So I don't think that's going to be working. I think you want to look at that 300 hammer. I think that's your baby. That should, 150 grain bullet at 22, 2300 feet per second should get the job done. So that's what I would look at, Joseph. Um, but hey, anyone out there who's heard of a WSM, those are those super short magnums. They had a 223, a 243, and a 25, to, as much as I remember. If you've used those in an AR, I'd sure like to hear about it because I just don't think it's all that possible, if possible at all. All right. I was a little bit perplexing on that one, Joseph. Let's see what Chad has to say here. He is from California, another one of those states where I didn't know they allowed you to go hunting. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a bit problematic. I understand, guys. Hey, Ron, a quick question. I'm hand-loading for my 260 Ruger Mark II compact rifle. Ugh, that's a good one. Love that 260. My question is, would it be better to neck down a 708 brass or would it be better to neck up 243 brass? <laughs> I don't think it really matters. I would, uh, gosh, neck down the 708 brass and then trim the excess diameter off the neck. Um, but shoot, 243 necked up should be about the same too. But um, either one of them should work just fine. Uh, but I would do some neck trimming on it. You would get consistent dimensions all around the neck as as well as... Uh, being successful in necking that thing down without excessive pressures from too thick of a neck in the throat of that rifle. But yeah, both of those sources of brass. For the folks who don't know the 708 or the 260, the 260 Remington is another 308 baby. The 308 Winchester necked down to 26. And I think they even kept the same uh, shoulder slope on it and everything. The long range shooters came up with that back in ooh, the early 90s. 
I believe. I think it came out as an official cartridge from Remington in the late 90s. Um, but that was kind of setting the world on fire and some of that long-range shooting until the 6.5 Creedmoor came along. And the reason the Creedmoor did so much better was because they twisted that barrel for the long, sleek bullets. Once again, the 260 comes out when the laser rangefinder wasn't yet invented. So it's like, why do we need to be worried too much about all this stuff? Because a hunter is not going to know the distance to his target to take advantage of this high BC bullet. So they built the 260 with bullets of the era in mind. Then when that Creedmoor came out, they were really starting to roll on the long high BC bullets. And that was the difference. So you don't see as many uh, 260 rems around anymore, but if you have one, it's a great cartridge. All right, we're going to talk to Greg now. He's from Minnesota. Minnesota, I know people who live there and have lots of friends who live there. And boy, golly, I like to go to Minnesota to listen to him talk like this sometimes. At least some of the older guys do. <laughs> we always have fun joking around with my friends in Minnesota. Hey, I am, like a few others, stuck with a rifle that's rendered useless by the cartridge parent company. Oh, in 2005, I bought a Model 70 Winchester in 25 WSSM. Ooh, it's WSSM day. Much the same as the Remington Psalm rounds. What are we to do? Yeah, the Psalms kind of went away too, except for the 7. That's hanging around. When contemplating a new purchase, it sure as heck wouldn't be around that hasn't been around for at least 50 years. Yeah, you get, a, you get this gripe a lot, guys, and I certainly understand it. Hot new round comes out, you get all excited, you buy it, and it's sort of like the new computer program. You jump right in there and find out it doesn't work very well, and you got to wait for version 0. 0.2, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.8 comes out before they finally get everything straightened out. In the meantime, you're pulling your hair, not getting any work done, been there, done that. <laughs> so what do you do when you have a 25 WSM? Back to our question about hand loading from Owen. If you hand-loaded, you wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> but I understand not everyone can hand-load or does. So what do you do when you've got a 25 WSSM? I would look to the custom hand-loading brands. There are many companies out there who load ammunition for you. Some of them will even take your rifle in so they can custom tailor those loads just for the right seating depth and everything else. Costs a little money up front, costs a little more for your ammo, but you get it. And you get really good stuff. So do a Google search or ask around for somebody who is offering custom loaded ammunition and go that route. Then all you need is the brass and you should have a supply of brass and or be able to find some. Also look for the different brass manufacturers like Starline, uh, Lapua, or as we say Lapua, Lapua. It makes some brass for cartridges that aren't commonly loaded over here anymore. And superb quality brass, by the way. Uh, so there are lots of options. You just need to dig in. Whether or not Winchester ever starts loading those again, I don't know. I would think they would want to keep it in the line for a while yet. They usually do when they start to fade out those cartridges. They keep loading for them. You can still buy ammunition for the 225 Winchester which very few people had or know about, um, but they'll still load that and a lot of the older ones. But then again, these days with the ammo shortage, they're not loading any of those obscure cartridges. So yeah, I would definitely look to the custom loaders. That should do the job for you. Well, I think that's about it for our questions today, guys. Thanks for the correction on the, the chamber pressures on that 500 Smith & Wesson. I had no idea. And thanks for a lot of great questions, guys. These are really good. I hope we all learned a little bit today. I certainly did. And until next time, I 
recommend that everyone stay cozy. Uh, winter will not last forever. Just feels like it this week. <laughs> and until next time, hunt honest and shoot straight. Mm-hmm.